attorney with uh, Red Metric Law. I am the principal. Uh, we welcome you today to our event with uh, public defender Mano Raju from San Francisco County. And uh, we just want to say first, thank you all for attending. We appreciate it very much. Uh, on behalf of Saba NC, we like to host events like this to involve um, our chapter um, and members outside of our chapter as well. And as a result of that, we are hoping today to bring some perspective on the San Francisco County Public Defenders race. And as a result, I present you uh, Mano Raju. Mano, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate you. So, so, um, so Mano, being a public defender involves, it's a political position, of course, mm -hmm. and it involves developing policy in, in your office to ensure that the administration of justice occurs in a way that both satisfies the people and obviously the defense. So what key action items are you working on at this point? We're working on a number of key action items. I would say the biggest one is just making sure that we provide the absolute best representation we can in courtroom. In a courtroom. I wanted people when they had me representing them or when they have me representing them to think I'm getting better representation from you than I would from any private attorney. And I want all of my uh, staff to be viewed that way. So that's, I think, the most important thing is just to make sure we ensure the highest level of representations and make sure we have the structures to make that happen, which involves not just the attorney, but the entire team, the social worker, the paralegal, the investigator. On top of that, though, we have an issue in this country with mass incarceration and we have and mass detention. We have an obligation to do as much as we can to fight against that. So we've beefed up our immigration unit and they have done some clash action work because of the conditions in uh, ICE detention to free people from that. Um, we've increased our narrative work. Um, we started a relationship with two film production companies to start creating short movies. It's called the Adachi Project. So if you go to wearedefender.com, we made three 11 minute shorts so far and we want to keep on going to start telling the narratives about our clients and our families so that the policy work can follow. We've been active in Sacramento in shortening probation terms. Uh, we've uh, started something called the Young Defender Program to give uh, a paid high school internship to high school students to get exposed to our work. Uh, we started the Beat the Jury Project, which is paying jurors who would otherwise financially hardship off juries $100 a day. Um, so, and that's increasing economic and racial diversity on juries. We've also uh, started something called an, an integrity unit because convictions don't have integrity if there's misconduct that jurors aren't aware of. So we started the first police misconduct, public police misconduct database connected to a public defender's office. And we also started a freedom project to bring people home who have been wrongfully sentenced or if the law changed to now allow judges discretion to bring them home. So we're sort of working on a number of fronts, both on the ground and on the back end on a policy level. So in many ways, I'd say, you know, my policies as much as we can do to help our clients and their families. That's just wonderful to hear. Um, it ties in sort of to the next issue. So San Francisco is a different county um, after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, Crime is different here now than what it was before. Um, it tends to be the case that uh, we see a mass number of people being arrested and a mass number of cases coming in. Um, the problem is though, is that that number seems to be increasing. And I guess the question is, um, how does a public defender work with, um, I mean, work with the county to ensure public safety? That's a very good question. And I think people don't realize the impact that the public defender can have on public safety. They tend to look to the police or prosecutors, um, parole or probation. But the reality is public defenders are the last people that we that want to see our clients come back, right? So when we, first of all, I think just the high level of representation of someone really seeing them as a full human and getting the best outcome, that helps public safety. Because actually when people are convicted of things they shouldn't be, 
because of overcharging or because of pre-trial detention or because of what's called the trial tax, which judges sort of intimidate people into pleading guilty, it's much longer to get get it off the record and that destabilizes families and, it, and potentially to the next generation. So getting the best outcome for our clients actually contributes to public safety. But the flip side is, you know, when we, uh, on a national level, on the board for National Association of Public Defender, and we're warriors for our clients, but we're also counselors and we're also activists. So it, it, there's three points to the triangle and we're sort of always pivoting around all three points. So we're also the counselor in the sense that because of Fifth Amendment protections, our clients can tell us anything. So I started a program called the End the Cycle Program, and we're going to be bringing in on-the-ground case managers to work with our clients to see, like, what is it this individual needs? Is it in a labor apprenticeship program? Is it substance abuse counseling? Is it a class at City College? Is it a mentor? Is it some combination of those? Is it what part of town should it be in? So really that on-the-ground case-managing wraparound services to get our clients, facilitate them getting to a better place in their lives is something that really contributes to public safety and can hopefully, uh, on the front end, prevent some incidents from happening. So, you know, it is very, you know, public safety is very important to us, and I like to think of it as community health because oftentimes it's perceived as the public being safe against our clients, and I think we should not make that distinction. We should think about the entire community being healthy, and we're a vital part of that. Absolutely. So um, San Francisco uh, basically made the decision to recall Chester Boudin, right? And the issue is, is that I guess it's viewed now as more of a referendum. You know, we, we may have seen looser sort of prosecution and looser sort of, you know, holding people accountable. Now, I have to ask, I mean, what do you say to those voters that seem to say, well, that's not what we want in our communities? Uh, how, how does the public defender's office respond to that under you? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think what Chesa did was a really, uh, uh, I think, a beautiful attempt at moving the ball forward in terms of criminal justice reform. And that was an important chapter. But that's one chapter. And there's going to be other chapters. Uh, there might be other chapters with prosecutors. But there's also an ongoing uh, story being written by the public defense uh, public defense community and our allies. And I think that we have a very vital role. We had a vital role under the Boudin administration of trying to do a lot of things, uh, you know, because for a progressive prosecutor to make a progressive decision, the public defender has to do a lot of work because their lens into the case is only the police report, right? But when you get to another hearing, we can ask other questions of the witness in the police report. Now all of a sudden the story has become bigger and more broader. We can also find other witnesses through investigation. Now it's an even bigger story, right? And then we can do the social history of our clients and, and the why of what happened. Now it's a it's a totally different case than the initial police report, right? So with that bigger, bigger lens, now you know a different decision can be made by a prosecutor, or we could agree to disagree and have the jury decide, right? But I think it's really important in our role because we have that proximity to our clients and we we have the ability to really be a driving engine in increasing um, criminal legal system reform, but not from a prosecution lens, but rather from the uh, defense angle. So I'm gonna take you to something more specific. So mm -hmm. um, there was an announcement recently that current district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, has mm -hmm. issued a new rule as it relates to uh, those who are responsible for drug offenses. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's my understanding as to what she said, that if somebody commits five drug offenses, at that point, it would elevate to not necessarily the criminal level, but what would be neighborhood legal courts locally mm -hmm. here in San Francisco mm -hmm. County. Um, what is your response to that type of policy? Sure. Well, it's actually criminal justice court, which is still a criminal court. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, 
to me, that's a somewhat arbitrary decision because these are this is a public health issue. Like substance abuse is a public health issue, and I think we need public health solutions to that. There's no one who thinks if someone was caught with a needle who's an addict or you know, a small amount of drugs is genetic. There weren't five other times. We know that. But now we have five other interventions with police, potential arrests, bench warrants, people being in custody, which is just perpetuating that cycle. I think, you know, a lot of other, uh, Portugal, for example, and others have really emphasized decriminalizing possession of drugs and really put more, much more emphasis on treatment, housing, uh, other opportunities. And I think that's the direction to move in. So I don't think that just, having an arbitrary number of five for use is going to dramatically change things or help people. That's, uh, so I'm also curious about um, what collaboration could mean with the district attorney's office to compile things like diversionary programs and other avenues to avoid conviction. So since we're discussing this issue now, I think it's important to address what policies do you think um, could exist? Is there any collaboration that could exist between the district attorney's office and the public defender's office to make sure that we have these things available? Yeah, and, and there's always going to be a level of collaboration when, when you're in the system. Um, but we have to make sure that the collaboration does not come from a place of weakness. Like it's still very important that we're prepared to litigate every single aspect of every single case. And having said that, if those diversion, having if we do that and then it's determined with the willingness and the ability and the actually resources to do that, that we think diversion is right for our clients. We're often going to advise that for our clients and we're glad that we have those opportunities for them. At the same time, sometimes those diversionary programs end up eating up a lot of resources that could often be better used outside of the criminal legal system construct to begin with. And I think that's the direction we want to see things move in, of course. So um, I, I'm going to go more sort of more general then. Uh, so what sort of reforms do you think are necessary in our local criminal justice system? What do you think can be done to make it more efficient, better for clients, and better for the community as a whole? Well, the biggest thing we need right now, uh, particularly coming after the, after the pandemic, is in San Francisco, we have a constitutional humanitarian crisis because the courts have steamrolled our clients' speedy trial rights. Normally, uh, you know, you have a... If you have a felony case, if you go no time waiver, you have a preliminary hearing within 10, 10 court days. And then after that, there's an arraignment and you have a right to a speedy trial within 60 days. Now what the courts have done is they, they said, we have an emergency, we're going to move the cases, even though that doesn't actually solve anything. It's not like there's going to be more availability of space. In fact, there's going to be more of an issue because you have more of a backlog. And the problem with that is twofold. One, you're just violating people's rights. And there are people who are presumptively innocent who can't get their day in court. Um, and we found that we've had clients who've been in for, you know, jail or with their cases pending for over a year. And once we go to a jury trial, the juries have decided in an hour that they're not guilty. The person goes home, and even on some very some of the most serious cases. But also, when you don't have that hard deadline, there's not the incentive for the prosecutor to really take a hard look at the cases because they don't have to prove anything. So we need that. We, we don't we don't control what's charged. We don't control whether our clients are in custody or not. We can advocate, but we don't make the decision. The judge makes the decision. And um, we don't control uh, you know, what the potential sentence would be that someone may impose. The only weapon that we have in our arsenal is our skill, our willingness to work for the client and that last day. So when that's taken away from us, it really turns the system on its head. So that's something that desperately you know, we need back is just the basic um, parameters of the speedy trial rights being honored. Um, do you think the public defender's office is going to take steps to litigate that specific issue? Do you, does the yeah. San Francisco public defender's office have a law in motion department for this purpose? We do, and we actually are. In fact, I'm a, I'm a plaintiff in a lawsuit against the courts 
because of this violation. And we're also litigating in, in another realm. We're appealing the denial of our motions to dismiss cases for violation of the speedy trial, right? So we have um, litigation going on in, in multiple ways right now. Thank you. So um, we're seeing a little bit more of a conservative sentiment come over this area. And conservative, of course, is completely um, subjective. Um, what do you say to those voters that have that mentality of you do the crime, you do the time? Well, I think one of the issues is when you say you do the crime, you do the time, what's the crime that was actually done? And I think if you don't have a vibrant public defender's office, you don't know what the crime actually is. Um, so that's the first piece I would say is that, you know, people are wrongfully convicted every single day in courtrooms, in every single courtroom in this country, uh, because of the three things I talked about, um, overcharging, pretrial detention, and trial tax. And that happens a lot. Um, and it, we often hear about it on the case where someone was doing maybe a life sentence and the DNA came back, but the reality is that it's actually much more common than we think. So that's the first piece that even for people who think that, okay, but then actually charge things fairly and give us the opportunity to litigate it. Having said that, th there's just no study that says crime time. I mean, the, these are, someone came up with this penal idea back in Philadelphia, you know, way back when that we, that the only way we deal with something that's causing harm is to put someone in a cage. And the reality is there are other ways of going about this. There is a lot of other thinking. There's a lot of thinking about non-carceral approaches to dealing with harm and that, that can be effective. And I think for us to show how that can be effective and just show the real damage, collateral damage, damage to individuals, but also to their family members, to their loved ones, to the partner at home who now is doing, you know, having to do the, all the parenting work to the next generation that um, you know doesn't get on this and start on the same footing because their parent had this crime. I mean, the impact of that happens on one individual often sprouts out. That's why I like to talk about not just client-centered representation, which is important, but family-centered representation. Because really, realistically, we're actually representing the whole family. So I made it a requirement in my office for our felony attorneys that you have to see your client within 48 hours. We've always had that role, but now I said, you also have to reach out to a family member within the first 10 days of representation so that you're seeing that person as a full person in community, in their community. And I think when you do that, you actually bring much more passion to your representation of the client. Absolutely. So I'm gonna say you're the first South Asian elected public defender to a major county. Um, and outside of that, I mean, we're the South Asian Bar Association. So how does your South Asian heritage contribute to that? Um, it, I think it contributes in a lot of ways. First of all, as a person of color, I think there's a lot of uh, similarities that, you know, we see from immigrant communities over the African-American community with Latinx communities. I mean, Asian-American communities. There's a lot of, uh, and, 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 you know, white communities in San Francisco. There's often a lot of, if you draw on your heritage, I think there's a lot of connections that you can make with different, different communities. And, you know, um, I, I've been effective in litigating against gang enhancements in, in in San Francisco. And I think a lot of the dynamics are actually similar to dynamics back home in my parents' village in India. Like my my uncle was accused of a, of a murder, actually, because of the caste that he came from solely based on the label of who he was. And that often happens in San Francisco, too. So because they're labeled, they'll be falsely accused. And I think drawing those connections between communities is actually vital. And I find that there's often a lot more that connects us than that divides us if we go back in history. And for example, uh, a friend of mine in Nirvana Chatterjee has done a lot of work on uh, Daisy Black connections, the civil rights struggle, both in the US and the um, anti-colonial 
anti-colonial struggle in South Asia. There are actually a lot of connections between that that people aren't aware of, but I think the deeper we go into history, the more we get into those connections, the more we realize we actually have a lot of uh, bonding and uh, shared interests among different groups. So um, you've actually been criticized, and oddly you've been criticized for the uh, size of caseloads that are carried by your felony attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, COVID, as we've discussed, has sort of changed the legal dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is There are different courts, like you mentioned, addressing the emergency orders. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm going to talk to you about what is actually going on with felony attorney caseloads. Sure. Um, the caseloads are higher. I think any public defender anywhere in the country would say they'd love to have their caseloads lower. Um, actually, when I was a felony uh, attorney, my case, I had 90 to 100 cases and 10 of them carried a life sentence at one time. Uh, right now, our average felony caseload is 47. It, I would like that to be lower than it is. Um, but as I said before, one thing that we rely on is that hard deadline, the hard deadline of you have to you see misdemeanors 30 days if you're in custody, 45 if you're out of custody, as I just explained, uh, 60 days for a felony case. And without there, there's not that pressure on the district or on the court or to actually resolve the case or push it to trial. So when that happens, cases are obviously caseloads are obviously going to go up if we don't have that those hard deadlines. But I'm actually proud of my office that we've developed a culture where you're not going to be an attorney in our office who just pleads a client to lower your caseload. We're not going to do that. And we have a very you know client-centric office, family-centric, fam-centered office, so as you just talked about, that is not going to plead something to some, just to get them off their caseload. And we really have ingrained that as the culture of our office. We're always going to push for the best possible legal results. You know, we tell our staff, leave no stone unturned investigation in your investigation, leave no motion unfiled, and leave no level of preparation undone. And you know, we're, we're, I'm proud that we have an office that's not going to do plead clients just to reduce caseloads. You know. And I want to talk to you about how you efficiently handle these cases mm -hmm. as well. So um, you, you mentioned that you focus on, you know, sort of thorough investigations mm -hmm. and so on. Um, how, how does your office deal with funding? Yeah, so that's something I'm constantly pushing for. Fortunately, I've been successful with budget advocacy the last two years, and we've actually been able to grow our staff both of the last two years with the help of either the mayor or the, the board of supervisors. And that's something I'm going to keep on pushing for in all elements of our office, more paralegals, more social workers, more investigators, more attorneys. And I think it's vital. And that's something that I keep on trying to emphasize. And uh, we know we had this moment in the um, budget hearings last year where one of the supervisors said, you know, we had this someone in our neighborhood and he was sort of, you know, a, a nuisance to the neighborhood. And we called the police, we called the DA, nothing was happening. And then we called a public defender. The public defender had came in, had the conversation with this individual and all of a sudden, you know, he, he was not the nuisance to people that he was before. And it just, it was it was sort of a light bulb for her to realize how much public defenders can do for the sort of community health issues that people are seeing. Now, now I'm going to ask, I mean, what's the most rewarding part about being a public defender um, and about being a public defender here in San Francisco? Uh, the most rewarding part about public defender, being a public defender is just the satisfaction that we get from clients and their families when we do our job at the highest level. And just that, just, you know, it's not a bonus. It's not, but it's just that, that appreciation and knowing that you really did something you know, beautiful for someone against, against odds that were, that are often stacked against us. Um, the most uh, energizing thing for me about being the public defender of San Francisco and being an elected is that, you know, I, you know, I took an oath and I actually took an oath, a community oath and Mario Woods's mom, I asked her to give me that oath. And some of you may know Mario Woods was a young man who was um, killed by the police 
in the Bayview is a tragic case here. And she's someone who's really been uh, a community leader. But I took an oath to say, listen, I'm going to always fight for racial justice. I'm going to always fight for immigrant justice. I'm always going to fight to give the best possible representation to my clients. And to me, the extension of that is being as dynamic as we've been, having a dynamic immigration unit, having a dynamic policy unit, having systems impacted people involved in our policy work, um, pushing for you know, vibrant and productive social work and providing the best representation we can in court and doing all those things. So I think being an elected, I'm really always trying to push the envelope because I, I've been very transparent, you know, with, I was transparent with the mayor when she appointed me and I was been transparent with the public when I talk about my vision. And I feel like, you know, too oftentimes public defenders have not been uh, given the respect that we're due and our clients and families are sort of a voice that doesn't have a lot of political leverage. And that's why it's really important for us to really be fighting for them. And that's what's really exciting to be able to do that. So I'm going to ask you, um, well, what's the most challenging aspect and what's the most challenging aspect of running the office? Um, you know, it's what's challenging about running the it's a It's a, you know, what's wonderful about the office, we have a lot of strong-willed, strong-minded individuals. That also makes it very challenging to, to sometimes manage people because, you know, we're used to, almost, it's almost like an anarchist approach to, you know, public defenders tend to be a little bit anti-authoritarian, which can be challenging from a management perspective. At the same time, it really comes from a passion to really do what's best for our clients. And I think what I'm trying to do is bring, you know, modern management techniques to public defenders offices. So we actually create three-year visions. And then in a lot of that three-year vision, what's our 18th month vision? And then what are some measurables that we can actually look at to see if we're getting closer to our vision? Um, you know, how do we get our defenders get the data from our defenders that can help our policy people in an efficient way to make the type of changes we want to make. Um, and what are the systems that we can in place to accomplish that? For example, um, can we create a, you know, we managed to triple the capacity of our clean slate unit by reaching out to foundations. And that's huge because when people have are on probation and they have a record, it's often difficult to access housing, to access employment opportunities, to access educational opportunities. Um, so we have a clean slate program, but oftentimes, you know, if you wait for people to come to you, it could be they're applying for a job. They, they may think nothing's on the record. They come back and they're knocking on the door and they're trying to get something and they may have already had the job tonight. So I want to come up with a system where, one, we shorten probation terms, but we actually start working on that so that the day people are on probation, our clean slate unit is coming in on that day and getting the records expunged. And that entails a lot of operational work. And that's one of the things that, you know, really looking at different management techniques and getting everyone on the same page while also being aware, you know, it's a grueling job and it's a difficult job. And if, you know, you, if your client gets convicted of something that you think it should have, it can be emotionally challenging. So we also have to take care of wellness at the same time. So dealing with operational efficiencies and wellness and holding high standards and really, really thinking about that, uh, you know, in a deep way is a challenge, but it's also a very exhilarating challenge because when you have success, you really see the benefit for both our staff and for our clients. So I want to talk to you about your staff. So um, what types of characteristics and qualities do you demand from your staff? What's important to you? What's important to you in your hiring processes? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, one thing is I want to know that people really have a passion for work, for the work. If you are doing this um, because it's just a job, it's probably not going to be something that sustains you. To be a public defender, I think you have to do it because it's a calling. And if it's a calling, then, you know, you can deal with the, you know, the difficulties 
of the job. The other thing is that, and you know, the passion can come from a number of reasons. Rashalda experience, it can come from your own um, uh, oppression that you've experienced. It can come from a political analysis. You know, it may come from, from a different place for different people, but it's really important that that passion and that calling be there for that individual. The second thing that I really like to see is the ability to collaborate with other human beings. I mean, it is really important you have be able to be collegial with your colleagues, despite the fact that you're going to be a warrior in the courtroom, you need, you need to be able to turn that off when you're dealing with your colleagues and you need to be collaborative. And I would say the third piece is a growth mindset. Like I always want to feel like if I'm doing a trial that I'm thinking about how can I do this one better than the last one? Is there some other technique of cross-examination, direct examination, storytelling, um, you know, motion writing, whatever it is we want a staff that's able to actually do something better than they did the day before. And that's really important to me. Well, um, outside of that, I uh, want to talk to you about more administration issues as it relates to the office. So um, what is it like for you transitioning from a public defender handling cases to becoming um, an elected official? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's, you know, I've had many transitions as a public defender. First, I was a line deputy for a number of years in Contra Costa and in San Francisco. And then I was the director of training. So that was one transition where I was um, still handling cases, but also involved in the training. Then I was a felony manager. So managing the biggest unit in the office, which is all of the attorneys handling the felony cases are the most serious cases. But then being the head of the office, it, it, and also an elected official is a very, very big transition um, because one, being an elected, um, I'm often being called on by other people, by supervisors, by, you know, people on the uh, city running for city college, people running for school board. So it's where I'm part, sort of part of the political fabric of the city. And I'm also on the DCCC, actually, the San Francisco Democratic Party at the same time. So, you know, you're getting called on for endorsements and you're supporting different initiatives and people are asking you to support different initiatives. So there's there's that whole dynamic apart from running the office that we're dealing with, but also, um, you know, as an elected, you know, I, I want, you know, it's, you know, you have, you have some, you have some strength in a way that you wouldn't if you were appointed. Like I could be more aggressive than some other public defenders who were only appointed um, because I forgot I was elected by the people. You can't fire me, you know? So, but I think that's really important because again, as I, as I was saying before, we, do represent some of the most marginalized and disenfranchised people. So it's really important that we, they have a powerful voice speaking for them. But it is, you know, from a personal standpoint, there's just a lot to manage in terms of how much time are you spending? Because, you know, people still call on me. In fact, it's happened just yesterday to do one-on-one, you know, brainstorming about their individual case. People will call me actually into the jail to talk to their clients about not taking a particular deal. And I still try to find time for that on the ground work. And I find that very, very rewarding. At the same time, I want to make sure that all of our, you know, uh, units are functioning at, at the highest level of capacity and, come, and trying to devise the internals, do the internal strategy plan to make sure that functions well, and also maintaining the relationships, doing the outside communications so that, and, and re- relationship building to enable our office to function at the highest capacity. For example, I'd love to see a pipeline for our clients. You know, we're already trying to, um, you know, get the best legal outcome for them. But, you know, getting that pipeline for our clients to go directly to an apprenticeship program with a labor union or to city college program or to something like that, creating that pipeline and developing those relationships so that can happen is something that's actually very exciting. It's wonderful to hear. Um, 
have you guys at this point had any new initiatives um, that have sort of made these pipelines, right? Or these right. avenues to alternative resolutions of these cases? Have there, has there been significant headway over the past couple of years that you've been public? Yeah, through? there's been, there, there has been some headway um, in, in terms of making those connections. We're still waiting, you know, one thing about working for a city agency is you can get funding for a position. You can't immediately just fill it though. It has to still go through its way through the civil service process. And sometimes that can take months to do. But having said that, we like I personally go out and make those relationships. So sometimes I'm also just making the call. I mean, what I'll do is often create like a shadow team. It'll be like me, a social worker, you know, maybe someone from the Samoan Community Development Center. And we'll ourselves, and I'll say like this, I want to make sure each one of us makes a phone call to this client once a week just to make sure. And it's been really satisfying to see people like sometimes looking at the most challenging cases. We do the litigation, we get a wonderful result, and then we're getting that person through the process of getting through clean slate and seeing that from someone looking at sometimes a life sentence to then being out there working and supporting their family is like one of the most rewarding things that can happen as, as a, as a practicing public defender. So um, it's my understanding you were mentored by Jeff, Jeff Dachi and you took over after Jeff's you know tragic passing. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about sort of what you have continued as a part of his legacy? Sure. I mean, one thing that, uh, Jeff really, to me, embraced was really that growth mindset. You know, when I was the training director, I would uh, conduct these trial colleges, either on opening statement or uh, different aspects of uh, trial preparation, voir dire, closing argument. And Jeff would be the first person in the first row sitting there taking notes. Like he really, you know, was, we're both really obsessed with the actual in-courtroom trial practice. So that's one thing. You know, I took from from him and he also talked about, you know, we're really trying to work ourselves out of a job in some ways. So we have these uh, what we call the magic program. We have Bayview Magic and Fillmore Magic. There's these youth empowerment community conveners. They do these free programming for youth in the summer. And we really are trying to make sure we empower transitional age youth and young people so that they you know, can thrive and hopefully not be people that we see as public defenders, but you see as acquaintances on the street, you know, not in a professional capacity, but in, in, a, in a friendship capacity. So that's that was actually one of my pulls to coming to this office because I was in Contra Costa County before, which is a very strong public defender's office. But this idea of really being a community office is something that um, I'm embracing and I'm actually trying to take that to the next level. Um, Listen, Lacoste is the wonderful director of our B Magic program. He actually nominated her for two managerial excellence awards. I've made her my chief of staff now because I don't just want our magic programs connected to community. I want the entire office connected to community and she's doing a wonderful job. That. So uh, post George Floyd, police accountability is a really big issue mm -hmm. and it's been on sort of a sliding continuum as of late in this County. Um, how do you address police accountability here locally? Um, and why is it important? It's super important. And, you know, too often times when, people have an issue with the police, they end up going to an organization with the name police in it, like Department of Police Accountability or, you know, and if you do, it's, it's, I think that's a disconnect for our clients. So that's why we started this police, uh, public police database, because the public defender, we're the most natural person to collect that information. Oftentimes, if someone comes in with the case, they'll tell you some story about a police officer and in the past, it would be like, well, you don't have to tell me that because that's not connected to this case. Now we're like, no, do tell us that. We need that information. We'll go do the investigation. We'll help you file the um, appropriate paperwork so that that can be documented. 
And it's really important that public defenders, I think, you know, be a vibrant force in police accountability and continue to do that. Having said that, I also think, you know, we need to do more work on, even if there's not misconduct, what is actually happening every day? Because when you look at the huge number of resources that are invested in police departments, it's really disproportionate to the impact that they have on what people call public safety. And I really think diverting some of those resources into other agencies, such as Public Defender's Office, such as Young Women's Freedom Center, such as some of the community-based organizations could do a lot for community health. So um, there's a new San Francisco DA at this point, and um, it's a new administration, which means new sort of um, cooperation or new sort of working together, new relationship, of course. Now, um, has that began to build between you guys? Uh, do, do you see some synergy there? Well, you know, I, I reached out and we, we've had a meeting and, but they just, this, this district attorney and frankly, any district attorney is going to understand that we have an obligation to zealously fight for our clients. And there are going to be times where we are going to have to agree to disagree on cases. Now, my personal practice as a practicing attorney and what I'd like to see for the office is you can do that respectfully. Like it doesn't have to be personal. It's just, and oftentimes when they give me an offer, I'll be like, no, thank you. And then, and then also, and, well, and I'll keep going, you know, it's, I expect them to often have a different view on the issues than, than I have, uh, than we have from a public defender perspective. Um, so I think it's very important that we zealously fight for our clients. Um, and that's, never going to change. At the same time, I want to make sure that any of the heads of these agencies, whether it's the district attorney's office, the sheriff's department, the police department, know that they have an open line communication to me and they can always reach out to me and I'm going to take their call and we'll have those respectful communications, even if we disagree. I want to know that I'll be respectful to you, even though but they understand, they know how I practice, they know I'm running the office, they know we're going to be aggressively fighting for our clients and their families. So I want to talk to you about uh, crossover cases. And when I mean crossover cases, I mean cases that have an immigration component where a mm -hmm. conviction could subsequently have a potential adverse effect on somebody's immigration status mm -hmm. and, and inevitably their ability to remain in the country. Can you tell me how your office handles these crossover issues and sort of what's most important to you as, you, as it relates to these issues? Yeah. Well, it's very important that we recognize these crossover issues. And so many times that is the case that, you know, your criminal case is one thing, but then there's a housing related issue and, 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 or an immigration related issue. Oftentimes the immigration related issue is often more important than the actual criminal for that case. So first of all, it's really important that we, you know, fight hard to defend the criminal case. In fact, I was literally an hour ago meeting with a client um, who was, you know, in my opinion, falsely accused of something and he's actually up for citizenship in a couple of weeks and he's, he's scared that that's gonna negatively impact that. So we actually have a very vibrant immigrant wing in our office that we've continued to grow. We have eight attorneys, paralegal, social worker, and we really fight hard to make sure that, you know, we minimize the immigration impact on our client of these cases and continue to fight there. And we've also been, as I said, mentioned before, successful in, in civil action uh, against, against ICE. But it's really important that our criminal defense attorneys are very aware of and informed about the immigration consequences. And then we try to uh, address this on both issues. And one thing I try to do is hire really culturally competent attorneys with, with multiple language skills so we can really and make sure that everyone gets a real very thorough immigration consult um, at the same time that we're defending them on their criminal cases. So. Thank you. 
So that sort of brings my questions to an end. Is there anything that you would like to share regarding, I mean, your experience as public defender so far here locally and how it's going to grow moving forward? Well, I, you know, it's been, um, you know, challenging in a lot of ways because we, as the whole country did, we went through a pandemic and I think I literally had the last in-person visit in the jail before everything was shut down, the jail business before the pandemic. So, um, but having said that, even in a pandemic, we've had several things, some of which I mentioned here that are first in the country, as far as the public defender office is concerned. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm really proud of the actual results that our attorneys continue to get in cases in the courtroom. Um, and I brought in some really talented people. I've provided more growth opportunities within each of the units in my office, from the paralegals, to the social workers, to the investigators, to the attorneys. And I really think we're, you know, there was like the progressive prosecutor movement. And I want to know what to name it, but I think it's maybe it's the daring defender movement. But I really think we're in the moment now where we really need to really push forward and and communicate how powerful and how much, how valuable it is to have a really, really powerful public defender's office that knows how to A, fight for the best results for our clients, but also make those connections with other community-based organizations to really, you know, help our clients get to the best place that they can be and, you know, make positive contributions against the, the legacy of mass incarceration and mass detention that's really destabilized so many families in this country. And I'm really excited about all the different ways that we're doing it on a narrative level, on a policy level, and on a litigation. Thank you. Well, that's actually my further question, so we'll turn it to the audience. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, hey, hey. Um, you know, this has been an amazing talk. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, and it's been really inspiring. And you know, I'm just curious for for those of us that are here, for those of us that are watching, what can we do to help? Like, how can we, as a South Asian you know community and the bar association? help out with, with all this great work that you're trying to do? Well, one thing uh, that can be done right now, I mean, it is a unique moment to have an elected public defender period, in, in this case, a South Asian elected public defender. And the reality is there's an elected sheriff and an elected district attorney in the ear of every legislator in California, but there's only one elected public defender. So I think to actually do more of the narrative uh, the narrative building about what a, a powerful public defender's can, office can accomplish is super important. And while people's eyes are this in the next two months, it's a great opportunity for us to do that through social media, through, you know, talking to people door to door um, in, in forums like this. So, and the reality is we can't get the message out without money though. Every election needs money. So South Asian community, if you could make donations at votemino.com, that would be really helpful because we really need to do that narrative story, uh, storytelling. And, you know, one of the themes of wearedefender.com, the brand of the Adachi project is reveal truth and demand justice. And that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to reveal truth about the system, the truths that are often buried uh, in the noise of the media or whatever's happening in the current political climate. And, but we can't do that without the resources. You know, our office is only 55% of the district attorney's budget. Our office is only one fifteenth uh, of the police budget. You know? So, um, and this opportunity of the election though, is an opportunity for us to do the narrative building that we need for a sustainable public defender's office. So we can spread our message to more and more people. And not just, and in a lot of the work that I'm doing here in San Francisco, to hopefully, spread the message about what a powerful public defender's office can do 
you know, other people from around the country have told me, thank you for saying that. Thank you for putting that on social media that helped me with my budget talks, you know? And so I'm trying to do this, you know, for, to make our own office as strong as possible, but also, you know, to help other public defenders and allied organizations. Thank you. Any additional questions? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you something. Yeah. You know, one of the things you talked about was um, there's more things that we have in common than set us apart. It's mm -hmm. a very powerful, yeah. powerful statement. And I'm curious, I believe you have, um, uh, you've done, um, uh, you have some education in South Asian studies, mm -hmm. I think it is. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious from your experiences as a South Asian American, mm -hmm. and then with the, the education you got on South Asian studies, how has that influenced your career, your career as a public defender, and then as kind of the uh, San Francisco public defender? Yeah. Uh, thanks for that question. You know, I mean, I, th there's so many ways that it influences it first, you know, um, like I speak double and there's, and, you know, I, I've had one case where literally like the case came down to, it was a Vietnamese client and it was the, the misunderstanding of something that he said in, 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 so we had the, you know, Vietnamese interpreters battling about what this means. So language is a very important part oftentimes in many cases. So having, you know, uh, being able to speak another, another language, I think has an impact on the work we do, but it's also just, you know, the, oftentimes that can be a bond when you share, like when I, I like to do my own investigation in cases and go up with my investigator, but I don't start with like, tell me what happened on this day. I start with the relationship building. Oh, you're from Yemen, you know, and you, just, you know, developing that bond and maybe they, they see some similarities in some historical similarities and people, you know, whether you look similar to them or they just feel the difference in establishing that relationship first, that can be very helpful. And then just seeing, you know, a lot of the dynamics, you know, in, uh, you know, marginalized communities in the U.S. are actually similar to some of the dynamics in marginalized communities, which my parents came from in India. So being able to draw those connections and, and talk to people about that. And oftentimes people will open up and I'll, I'm finding I'm able to make connections and headways with people um, that maybe others don't make as well. And one way I've done that in, in um, you know, because I try to bring some of that to your point to the courtroom is, and I'll just give one example. There's in San Francisco, they have a very well-oiled gang task force where they label many black and brown members of our communities gang members. And often go into the community and they're like, that person's not a gang member. They're, yeah, I know they have that tattoo, but they're really not. So what I, did is that I used to have a uh, pickup basketball game at Balboa High School. Uh, I go every Sunday and there was someone from the baby who would bring young people there. And he was telling me, no, there aren't, this is the person's, that's not a gang. It's actually the misplaying. And I said, I want you to come to court and say that. And I had him qualified as a community expert. So the district attorney was bringing their gang expert. The judge was saying, this person isn't a gang expert. And I said, that's fine because my client's not a gang member. My client's <laughs> a community member. And I'll bring my community expert. They can bring their gang expert. We'll have the jury decide. And the judge was like, okay, you've looked at the evidence code. He has a point. You know, <laughs> he will increase the understanding of the jurors. And now that's become a practice in San Francisco. And we have a lot of community experts coming in all the time. And I find the jurors are really hungry for that information because the reality is in San Francisco, and, you know, we're in a very beautiful law firm right now. The you know, the space, psychological space and the, uh, even though this is only a seven by seven city, if you go up to some parts of San Francisco, that might as well be my parents' village in India. It's as far away from the reality of certain people who live in San Francisco. So I think, you know, 
my background, you know, interest in anthropology or in South Asian studies and things like that. I'm trying to bring some of that, you know, critical race theory and all that into the courtroom and sort of meld some of my interest and personal political and, and, and educational interest and bring that into the courtroom. And I find the ability to do that has been really, really rewarding. So thanks for that question. Any additional questions? I have one. Um, by, well, the criminal justice issues uh, vary from county to county. Do public defenders share sort of best practices and um, sort of like initiatives, like some of the great ones you're talking about? And then what are some of the initiatives in other counties in the Bay that you would like to see in San Francisco? That's a great question. We do um, have meetings. In fact, I've had meeting with the other chief defenders at the end of the month in um, in in Berkeley. Actually, is where our meeting is, but it's often in different places in California. You know, one of the things that I've um, you know one of the other public defenders does is a lot a lot of work with data. And you know, so one of the chief attorneys she made her one of her chiefs not an attorney but an IT and data person because she realized that's what she needed for her office. So even though she herself is a really accomplished uh, trial attorney, she wanted uh, functionally the second in charge to not be a trial attorney because she realized it's really important we have data. It's really important we have systemic. It's really important we have someone who can advocate for budget to help us get more people who can actually do the trial work. So I think there's a tendency in a lot of offices to just take someone who's a great trial attorney and say, oh, obviously you're going to be the best manager. You're going to be the best leader for this unit. And there's actually just not necessarily anything to back that up. And I say that as someone who was promoted primarily for my trial skills, but I'm aware that that doesn't necessarily make someone the best leader. And in this moment, I think it's really important that we draw from, you know, modern theories in management theory. And so I actually did that. I hired a consultant from outside, had a process with my entire office, made it open to the entire office to give input. And then we've divided into the different functions that we accomplished. And I brought in promoted people are brought in. Uh, someone from the outside to lead these. And I think so just really being intentional about that has been really valuable. The other thing is, um, you know, I'll, you know, I had someone from another office uh, come in and do a training on diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion things. And she did a lecture series. So if I find someone from another office who's doing something that's valuable, I'll bring them in and say, let's do a training on this. And I, I think that cross fertilization is a really, really important thing to do. Okay. Any additional questions? All right, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, thank you to Punkit Doshi and McDermott, Will, and Emery for hosting our event. Thank you to Mano Raji for joining us and providing us with the insight as to what this race is going to be like. And uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. And thank you.